our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. Welcome to Unspun, the podcast that makes you better at finding the truth. The way people get news is changing. It used to be that there were many reporters who would research stories and write articles, but now politicians and famous people share information directly with you on social media and the internet. That means you find out things fast, but it's up to you to make sure the information's actually accurate. And newsmakers don't always do their part. The temptation to manipulate information is strong. They bend the truth to deceive so that they can avoid accountability, so that they can advance their agendas. When you recognize these agendas, you can sometimes find out what's real. And we're at a crossroads where anyone can share anything online. So it's important to sharpen your critical thinking skills. Finding that deception before it goes viral is pretty much a survival skill now. And we're going to do it together. Let's get unspun. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this bonus mini-sode of Unspun. I made this because of the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States this week. The holiday commemorates early colonizers surviving, with substantial help from indigenous people, and today it's a big time for Americans to travel and spend time with their families. But before we get into that, did you know that the New York Times tells a blatant lie in each and every issue? It's true. It's right in the nameplate where their slogan is, All the News That's Fit to Print. Is that true? Maybe under a certain definition. There's two parts there, all the news and fit to print. Is it all the news? Of course not. Is it all the news that's fit to print? Well, that depends on what fit to print means. I think what they really mean is all the news that we liked, all the news we had room for, probably a combination of both. And that brings us to the idea of cherry picking. Cherry picking is when someone wants to prove a point, so they take a large group of information and they only provide the ones that support their point. Does that mean their point's proven? No, not necessarily. So for example, a stock index like the Dow Jones Industrial Average is intended to show the health of the overall economy by applying a function to the sum of the prices of the stocks of 30 large companies. The companies you've heard of like McDonald's, Microsoft, Johnson & Johnson, and Home Depot. Now imagine for a second that Disney, another one of the companies that's included in the Dow, makes a big announcement. Let's say they've got an AI so good that your child can put on their new VR headset and they can step into the action at any point in an Avengers movie. Right after Thanksgiving here in the States, we've got Black Friday coming up, and it's a big Christmas gift shopping day, and this could be a real game changer for the company. So they make this announcement, and Disney stock goes way, way up. Now, a politician who wanted to be deceptive could look at the increase in the value of Disney stock and say, hey, look, Disney went up so much. You know, so the economy's doing great. But maybe when you look at the rest of the average, it went down overall. That's cherry-picking. In fact, you could argue that just by picking the largest companies out of the economy, the Dow Jones Industrial Average itself is cherry-picking. Anyway, cherry-picking is not including all the data in order to support the point that you want. We're seeing this right now. So let's have a listen for our mini-sode warm-up. These are the pictures you've seen of January 6th. They're familiar because they've been playing on a loop on every media outlet in America for the last two years. There's a reason for that. But it turns out there's quite a bit of video you haven't seen. 
And that video tells a very different story about what happened on January 6th. More than 40,000 hours of surveillance footage from in and around the Capitol have been withheld from the public. And once you see the video, you'll understand why. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its allies in the media prevented you from seeing it. By controlling the images you were allowed to view from January 6th, they controlled how the public understood that day. In case you no longer recognize that voice, it's Tucker Carlson, back when he had a show on Fox News. And he's accusing Democrats of cherry-picking by showing videos of violent entry and attacks on cops on January 6th. In the Fox special that's being shown here, he's actually showing some people walking into the Capitol unimpeded. And some members of Congress and conservative influencers are showing that same clip now as a way to frame the release of all of the hours of footage. Because the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, said he's going to put all of that surveillance footage up for the public. Now, mind you, there are 44,000 hours of video. How many hours have you seen? Probably less than one. Actually, it would take you more than five years continuous to watch it all. And we know it hasn't been five years since January 6th, so that means that probably there is no one person who has watched all of that video. Everyone is taking selections. So here's the question. Who is cherry-picking? Remember, cherry-picking is not just taking pieces out. We often have to do that. It is taking pieces out to prove your point. And so the answer to that question comes when you think about what the bad part of that video is. Here's an analogy. Let's say that I'm going to go 364 days out of the next year without burning my neighbor's house down. But one of those days, I do burn my neighbor's house down. Can I argue that you shouldn't accuse me of a crime because most of the time I'm a peaceful, good neighbor? That's silly. And so is saying that video of some people not being violent means that the videos of violence don't matter. Cherry picking. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I get back, we're going to talk about how you can talk to your Aunt Gladys at your Thanksgiving dinner about things like this. I've had enough of this. I'm going back out to touch up my skin. I have some work to do. Fine, I have to go anyhow. Hey! This is not going to happen. You're not going back out to your moonscape. You're not going back to work, and you're not going home. Now, we all agreed to have Friday night dinner, and we're here, and I smell dinner. And yes, apparently there are some issues to be worked out, but no one, I mean no one, is leaving here until we do. I love this clip from the TV show The Gilmore Girls. It's not about Thanksgiving exactly, but it definitely highlights some of the stresses of getting together with your family when you don't always agree with them. But perhaps you'd like this from The Daily Show a little bit better. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and that means getting together with family members who you might not see eye to eye with. But this Thanksgiving, Leslie Jones will come to your house and politely interject when the conversation becomes political. I'm just thankful that Roe v. Wade was finally overturned. That's the conversation you want to start right now at this table while everybody's happy during Thanksgiving. Why are we trying to be happy? You know what? Have some dry-ass turkey. All right. The holidays are right around the corner. And for a lot of us, that means spending time with family and friends we haven't seen for a while. These get-togethers are great for catching up, but things can get tricky when these touchy topics come up. Conversations about politics, health issues, current events, they can easily turn into heated arguments. So how do we talk through these messy issues when misinformation is involved? 
Can you get through to someone who just sees the world so differently? Well, after I was a journalist, I became a communication professor, so I do have some thoughts. And I want to share some research-backed tips to help foster real understanding. My goal is to help you all have thoughtful holiday conversations, even with folks you disagree with. Just one caveat, though. If you just can't be around some people in your family for whatever reason, if it's triggering to you or harmful to your mental health, you know, this doesn't apply. You need to take care of yourself. So I want to tell you what research suggests you might be able to do if you can go, but someone's really going to tick you off. First off, here's a wild finding. We all know we live in a really politically polarized time. But did you know that that polarization has already affected Thanksgiving? An article by Chen and Rolla in Science found that, quote, Thanksgiving dinners in which the host and guest lived in oppositely voting precincts were up to 50 minutes shorter than same-party precinct dinners. So this clever study measured this with smartphone data, which they matched with the voting trends in the precincts where people lived. Their family members, warned to avoid talking about contentious subjects, maybe just talked less. The effects were different. People who lived in Republican districts who hosted people from Democratic ones had shorter meals than the opposite. But overall, the researchers estimate that in 2016, there were 35 million hours of table talk that were lost. So I guess that's one solution to a peaceful holiday this year. Make it short. But many of you hate their politics, but you love your family. What do you do then? Dr. David Schramm, who studies human development at uh, Utah State, has a few suggestions, according to an article on the school's website. He suggested remembering that people are more important than problems. You aren't going to change the world at one meal, and you probably aren't even going to change Aunt Gladys. Just that perspective can help. Maybe it's not up to you, though. Maybe you're coming in with a strong opinion and everybody already knows that you have it, and so Aunt Gladys may try to bait you into an argument. Just don't let her. A simple, huh, can be a good reaction to keep repeating until trying to get a rise out of you becomes boring for her and she turns back to the game or the deviled eggs. Here are a couple of other ideas if you really need to talk with your relatives. First one is to keep it personal. When talking with someone you don't see eye to eye with, I think most of us go into debate mode. You know, you've brought the facts, you've got the receipts, and it's great that you're well-informed. And honestly, it's kind of sad that Aunt Gladys isn't. But if you, well, actually, to people, it might have the opposite effect from what you want. Get this. Studies show that personal stories can actually be more powerful than cold, hard facts when it comes to changing minds. Researchers at the University of North Carolina had more than 400 people discuss political disagreements. And they saw that sharing personal experiences, especially emotional ones involving being harmed, led to more respect between the two sides. Even more than just spouting statistics did. It turns out, stories feel more true to us humans than objective facts do when morals and politics are at stake. Now, beyond swapping stories, point two is trying to understand their view. Research shows it pays off to try to understand where the other person is coming from. Stanford scientists had Democrats and Republicans practice empathy for the other side. And those folks were then more willing to work together. They felt less hatred toward the other group, too. A short conversation prompting some perspective-taking substantially cut down prejudice as well. And so the takeaway is to ask sincere questions, to find common ground, and to remember that the other side likely means well even if their conclusions are off-base and even if they're kind of obnoxious about it. The next point is to try for empathy. Some really, really powerful research drives home how even small efforts at empathy can make a dramatic difference when tensions are high. These scientists in California, David Brookman and Joshua Kala, conducted a field experiment 
focused on improving attitudes towards transgender people. So they trained canvassers, door knockers, to have thoughtful 10-minute door-to-door conversations, gently encouraging active perspective-taking and walking in other people's shoes. And remarkably, just this brief and respectful nudge toward understanding different views caused massive decreases in prejudice against transgender people. And these decreases lasted for at least three months afterwards. Researchers found similar effects, regardless of whether the canvasser themselves was transgender. This real-world demonstration reveals that even in polarized environments, taking time to seriously understand divergent perspectives can really pay off. Practicing empathy leads to more mutual goodwill. Here's another research-backed insight. It helps immensely to appreciate that people can have radically different perspectives and experiences, even about the same object or situation. So here's an example. You might remember the viral dress photograph from 2015. It was a picture of a dress, and some people saw it as white and gold, and other people saw it as blue and black. And each side could not understand how the other saw different colors. This phenomenon reveals how diverse factors shape how we perceive things. Our brains process sensory input based on lighting conditions, our individual structures, culture, and more. And, you know, there's not always just a right perception. So coming to terms with that diversity makes it easier to navigate those disagreements because we can maybe hold space for multiple interpretations. So when you're at the holiday dinner table, if you feel just baffled by your family members' views, remember the dress. They may be viewing the same issue through a fundamentally different lens and allowing for those varied vantage points diffuses tensions. And finally, let's understand the science behind how people update their perspectives. According to author David McCraney, when we encounter new information, our brains either assimilate it into existing mental models or accommodate it by reshaping those models. Assimilation fits new data into what we already believe, and accommodation makes a whole new pattern or category. You know, for example, imagine a child raised to view dogs as a four-legged pet. If they see a horse for the first time, they might assimilate and incorrectly call it a dog. But correcting this mislabeling requires the harder work of accommodation, forming a whole new horse category in their head to update their model. Keeping this in mind may help us be patient when loved ones are assimilating questionable claims into their worldview. Constructively changing those models takes time and it takes openness, and you can't really expect quick change on charged issues. But if we model thoughtful reflection, we create space for gradual opinion change. And finally, I want to share a couple of my own ideas. So let's say Gladys brings up something that sounds kind of nuts. You might want to try asking her my three-question test. Now, you're going to do this nicely. You have to be genuinely curious about the answers. It may be hard, but you can do it. The first thing you want to ask is, who's saying this? Basically, trying to find out the source for the information. And something beyond, I saw this on Telegram or I saw it on Facebook. But what do I actually know about the person who shared the information? Now, the subtext here, which you're not going to say out loud, is, does Aunt Gladys actually know that person? Or does she even have evidence that it's a person who exists? The next question for Aunt Gladys is, why are you seeing it? The subtext here is that what the author actually wants me to do probably matters. So why are they sharing this information with me? Why is it important for me, Gladys, to see it? And then the third question is, what evidence did the person give you when they said it? The subtext here, of course, is, is there actually any evidence? And then if there is, is the evidence quality? This is not always going to work, but sometimes you can help Aunt Gladys to maybe think more critically about information as she receives it. She may keep believing the nutty thing right now. 
If you say, though, Gladys, you know, whenever I see something new, I always ask myself these three questions. Maybe the next time when she sees something baddish, she might engage in that behavior too. So you're not picking the fruit today, but you're planting that seed for tomorrow. And if you've done that, you've done good work. So what are the takeaways here? At the end of the day, leading with personal experiences and making an effort to understand different views can lead to way more constructive conversations and we can start seeing each other's humanity over our differences. I'm thankful for you, listeners. And for those of you who celebrate, I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving, and I'll see you next time on Unspun. Stay sharp, everyone. Thanks for getting Unspun with me this week. Unspun is a production of me, Amanda Sturgill, and is a proud member of the MSW Media family of podcasts. Send me your thoughts and ideas about trickery in the news on Gmail at theunspunpodcast at gmail.com. I even write back. And find this episode's show notes and more information at theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Want to learn more and get smarter? Check out my book, Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News, which is available on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. And until next time, stay sharp, everyone. <laughs>